hippos are made to be in the water. Right. So that that animal, I mean, we were nervous because we yeah. nursed her all this way. But and then she was fine. Hippos do what hippos do. Right. And she their was job. great. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. And a blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. So I'm super excited to introduce Dave Janicki who is the chief operating officer of the Cincinnati Zoo, also known as Zoo Chief. But mostly I'm excited because I've been trying to get Dave on the show for months, and I have now succeeded. I am so excited to be here. Thank I, you for the invitation. So, sorry it, it took I so like, long. No, are you? To make it down. I am. I am. I'm just kidding. Okay, so um, I was telling everybody at work today that you were going to be on the show tonight, and they have all these questions. Uh-oh. You know, I'm going to be a hard-line interviewer I'm today. Ready. I'm just I'm teasing. Ready. I'm really not. Okay. Well, I mean, we are going to get to certain things. Of course, we have to c- talk about my Fifi, but we'll get to her in a minute. And then, of course, we have to talk about Harambe. You know, I got to ask about that, too. Um, but I, I want them to get to know you a little bit, because so many people know Thane, Maynard, and um, he's sort of the front of the zoo. And to me, you are like the person in the background um, that knows as much as Thane, but people don't know that you know as much as Thane. Like Thane is more the face, I feel like. Can I say that? Yeah. You know, we Thane and I have worked together for 28 years. When I, when I came to the zoo uh, in 1990, um, I started working in the education department right alongside uh, Thane. And he and I... There are times where he and I finish each other's sentences, yeah. and there are times um, you're like the man behind the curtain. Yeah, where right you, you develop you, you develop complementary skills. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and that works for us. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know Dave, he is so awesome. One of my favorite people. It's true. Um, so I was really pumped that you're going to be on the show today. Yeah. Okay. Give us a background. Where did you grow up? Tell us about your family of origin. Yeah. I love talking about that. I, I do, too. I love talking. I grew up here in Cincinnati. Um, grew up uh, in High Park and uh, went to school here in town um, back at High Park Elementary. You know, I went to school so long ago, It was I was thinking about this this morning. You know, I used to be able to walk home at lunch. Yes. To have lunch at home and have yeah. a hot meal rather than a, a sandwich in a bag. Um, and loved growing up Um you know, in the city, in this area. So my my experience was one where uh, both my parents were teachers. So um, that meant two things. One, on weekends, we would go to the zoo. We would go to the nature center. We would go to the museum center. Uh, at that point, the Natural History Museum in, in Eden Park. And we'd explore and we'd just have a blast um, out running. I can remember running in the creek out at the nature center, which I do today, um, yeah. taking my dog and, and my daughter out there. But those experiences were core to who I am. Um, and they also probably evolved from both my parents being teachers, very what open-minded. Kind of t- what kind of teachers were so they? My dad taught history. So he was that, that guy that had that historical perspective and info. You never win an argument with him um, <laughs> uh, about, uh, about the world. And my mom taught fifth grade. Um, and uh, So all the subjects. Oh, yeah. So you always had, always had help. Uh, with homework, 
uh, when you'd come home at night. And um, and they were off on the sum- in the summers. So they were off in the summers, and we would pack up in a coachman trailer every summer um, and drive. You know, we drove from Cincinnati to uh, California, up the coast to Washington, to Olympic National Park, to the southwest. Drove all the way to Nova Scotia, wow. up through Maine. And we would visit national parks um, all over the nation and camp and explore. Um, we'd visit, you know, places where we'd see historic uh, either, you know, things like graveyards or, or houses, which always bored the heck out of me. But, <laughs> I, you know, take me to a park. I always thought I'd grow up and be one of those uh, one of those park, park rangers. rangers wearing the big, uh, you know, Smokey the Bear hat, yeah. standing in front of a campfire of, of campers at, you know, at Yosemite National Park telling stories about the park. Um, and I love that. I loved I love that idea of exploring. Um, in fact, one of my one of my true failures in life was was that as a parent when I, I started comparing how many national parks I'd been to um, with one of our other zoo employees and we were counting them off. I was up to like thirty three and he he had beaten me by like two and my daughter looked up at me and she was eight or nine years old and said, Dad, you've never taken me to a national park. <laughs> Seriously? And I felt, oh, not I did. Not one? Not one. I felt about this big. Um, and, you know, in that case, the only thing you can do is is change that behavior right yeah. off the bat. And right. so a few months later, we were down in the Smoky Mountains, hiking some trails, looking at waterfalls, um, you know, exploring some of the same places I explored as a kid. I love that. So you kind of knew that you wanted to do something that was nature-oriented, biology-oriented, yeah, you know, um, I think as often the story, you're impacted, you know, the people in your life, um, particularly teachers yeah. um, early in your life. In fact, you had a great uh, biology teacher at uh, Walnut Hills um, named Mr. McCollum. We used to have an alligator in the back of the classroom. Yeah. It was a phenomenal experience. I used to love going to class. And I love biology. I love learning biology. I loved, you know, uh, studying the world and how all the pieces fit together. And from there, I went to Miami University, got a degree in zoology and got out of college and was like, what the heck do I do now? Right. And the jobs that I saw at that point were in a lab and I didn't want to be inside. Okay. So my, my career didn't jumpstart. My career started as a carpenter. Um, and I spent the- Seriously? Yeah. I spent a few years and probably some of the most important years for me as a person because I learned- then um, working for a, a Finnish carpenter here in town and learned then the importance of finishing a job and finishing it right. Um, and that that skill or that, you know, all of a sudden when there's a, it's two people, we were yeah. the whole company and we go into houses and rehab, uh, different aspects, build kitchens, bathrooms, whatever. And if it wasn't right, it was it was on us and we had to do it over. And you learn really quick to do a job correctly uh, and finish And there are it. a lot of different pieces. Oh, yeah. And that, that to me, so when we were talking about you and Thane, you know, since you're the chief operating officer, you have to know how to put the pieces together, right? How it, to build the team, put the puzzle together. Yeah, it's true. It is um, – it's something I, I, I've always been – uh, I don't know whether I've been accused or celebrated for being a, a middle child. Uh, <laughs> I'm a middle child. But I, That's I, why we're friends. I do try to see uh, things from different people's perspectives and, and try and figure out how to make 
put all the pieces together to make things work uh, and to excel. Okay, so you graduate from Miami, then so you spent are two a years working as a carpenter, um, and then went back to Oxford. I spent the better part of. Uh, of the 80s in Oxford, Ohio. Um, so I went back to graduate school. Okay. Got a degree in uh, environmental science at a really great program that still exists today, the Institute of Environmental Science, and uh, ended up doing an internship at the zoo. And for three months, I worked with Thane. For three months, I worked with some of the program folks, um, was eventually hired at the end of that internship. Uh, and for what? To run at that point, I was running the intern program, which was somewhat ironic, having just graduated from it, right. and and uh, taught scout programs and overnight programs. Okay, so zoo. educator, yeah, yeah. Type so stuff. I was in the education department. Okay, all right. Um, from educator, give us the progression. Yeah, so I guess the progression for me um, is that I love new challenges and taking on. Uh, taking on change, taking on new ideas, um, challenging myself. Um, so for me, I progressed into the to eventually running the education department, uh, and then at one point, our our then director uh, came to me and said, I, "I want you to take on managing facilities." And I, Greg, I don't know anything about managing facilities. facilities. It's like it's okay, it's okay. You you'll be good. And um, luckily, at that point, we also hired this incredible guy who's still with us today, Mark Fisher, uh, who runs our, our program at the zoo. Um, but it gave me a chance to grow as a leader and to grow into other areas of the zoo that, that again, gave me a perspective of both the complexity, but the, um, I don't know if beauty is the right word, the, the magic of it, how it all comes together. Yeah. So... Take us through some of the highlights maybe of the zoo because you were definitely part of all the growth and changes that occurred. So the 80s, what were some of the changes or growths that happened there? Yeah, so when I, I started at the zoo uh, in 1990. Um, and oh, sorry, I made yeah. you older. No, that's okay. It's okay. I, I was able to correct it okay, really quick. Job. No good one would have noticed if we were just gonna <laughs> kept talking, but... Um, the nineties, you, <laughs> the nineties were, um, really a time of, of great, uh, expansion and growth. We added jungle trails. We added our polar bear exhibit, renovated vanishing giants or then elephant exhibit. Um, so it was this exciting time. We added manatees. I was involved in the, the manatee design process and the educational side of it. Yeah. Um, it also was a time that led us to the early two thousands, where the zoo um, was not in good shape. You know, we were losing money, um, lots of money, a few yeah. years in a row. Um, and it's when the then director uh, left and we went into a, a search and eventually hired Thane uh, Maynard as director. And at that point, you you could see how change and how success was, was getting started because during the early 2000s when the the zoo was not in good shape you'd walk around the zoo and that heavy sense of energy <laughs> there was no energy it yeah. was all very heavy it was the the staff was dour the even the, i think the visitors weren't as excited and yeah. um we were able to turn that around um did you guys I, recognize it oh yeah you oh, did yeah. Oh, okay yeah 
So you it, and Th- so were you reporting to Thane at that yeah, point? Yeah. And, and so you two strategized and said we need to do a turnaround here. Yeah. He and I we actually went out to to visit. We were in the early stages of building our giraffe encounter. You know, when I was a kid, I came to the zoo and fed giraffes. Right. And we're like, why can't we do that again? So we we began putting the pieces together to uh, have a giraffe feeding station. Uh, so we went to visit a couple zoos that do it well. One of them being Cheyenne Mountain Zoo in Colorado. And I can remember still to this day, we were driving around back from uh, Colorado Springs to Denver, and we were tasked with the challenge of saying, what is, what's winning for the zoo? How do we define what success is? And we, we came up with the, the phrase that became our mantra for over a decade of, our job is to inspire every visitor with wildlife every day. And if we do that, our membership's going to grow. Yeah. Our attendance is going to grow. Our animal staff is is and, and staff across the zoo is going to be bring more energy. The, the whole thing is going to work. And with a lot of stops and starts, it actually did. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's funny. I was thinking about this even as we were uh, chatting about doing this. That at that time, because you're you're failing, because you're losing money and you have to try something new you have to change what you're doing yeah all of a sudden it was easy to come up with new ideas it it was we were at that stage where everything was something let's try that let's hey what if we focus you know if we stay focused on the idea to inspire visitors with wildlife let's let's have keepers come out and do encounters let's walk animals around the park let's take the animals that we that we share with our visitors in our education programs, let's let's hire a team and have them walk out through the park with visitors, and all those things started to to snowball around a, a visitor engagement initiative that we. But that it. was because you guys were so open to it, you know. I think there's some truth in that. I think you know. I think one, we were both educators, so we understood the power of inspiring people. With, yeah. with wildlife. And, you know, when you think about a zoo, yes, we do conservation. Yes, we do education well. Um, we do ad- adventure and, and create those experiences for the family, often for generations of family here in town. But we also recognize that our job um, is to really create experiences mm. um, and connect with our community and have these incredible animals that uh, that are in our care inspire um, the people that come to visit us at the zoo every day. So it was kind of out of that failure. I don't want to just use that word failure, but it was because the zoo wasn't doing so well that growth came about. Yeah, we changed the model. We changed the idea from saying the success of the zoo isn't dependent on the the diversity of animals that we have. Yeah. Um, it isn't dependent, you know, in a museum context on the paintings on the wall. Right. It's what we, how we tell the story about those, um, about those animals, how we connect people to those animals, how we think about the emotional side of it. You know, we live in a day and age today where you can, in 10 seconds, Google any animal fact you want. Right. But the idea of being able to visit, to see, to, to see touch, it. to hear live animals creates an emotional and connection. And sometimes smell when you're yeah. in the elephant house. <laughs> Dave, um, so let's build on that. 
can you talk about Harambe a little bit? I don't want to get into the negative. I want to know what were the gifts that you got, the learning from that. Um, it was a it was a difficult time for for all of us. Um, I'd say two of the most important learnings that we had about you know you mentioned being transparent and being being open, um, and I have recognized in this community the value of of being transparent, the value, um, you know, when an animal's born at the zoo, of sharing that journey with our community, the the empathy that people have if you respect them, um, if you bring them along with the journey, Mm -hmm. whatever that journey may be, good or bad, um, the empathy that this community and support that this community has for the zoo was was a gift throughout that entire process. And I think the second thing for me is, again, looking internally at the staff. Um, yeah. I couldn't have been prouder of Thane, uh, Thane Maynard, our director. At that moment, he stepped into a void that not only led the zoo, but led the emotion and how we're going to deal with this and how we are going to respond to it in a way that everyone in the zoo reflected because i think people forget that that was heartbreaking for the keepers like it, i because I, I i when people get critical i always defend and I, I don't defend i say have you guys ever thought about how hard that probably was for those keepers yeah it, oh my it was gosh. you know they're on they're on the front line of it and they have to come in the next day yeah. And take care of the And they followed the other, protocol. Yeah. Everything that they needed to do, they did. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I couldn't have been prouder of of our entire team. Everybody everybody there. It you know, in the world accidents happen and um So what did you guys do afterwards for your staff to kind of get through, especially for those keepers of of Harambe? How do you Yeah. Yeah. It, like it, almost kinda of need to give them counseling, I would think. We offered that for anyone, anyone at the zoo uh, who who needed that. Um, we, you know, I think the most important thing you can do in those moments is is to reach out personally. Um, uh, Thane spent a lot of time down with that team. Um, I'd interact with the team. It it is, you know, as a zoo, you had to just be open. As a as a leader at the zoo, you had to be open to supporting your team mm-hmm. wherever they were. Right. And no matter where they were. Sometimes that was a shoulder to cry on. Sometimes that was talking through um, what was happening next. Um, but you know that that openness uh, again is something. I'll, I'll tell you a funnier side of Thane and I's leadership style. Um, when we when we took over. Uh, kind of managing the zoo in, in the early 2000s, we joke with folks that we be ready. We're going to kind of run this like a Montessori program because, you know, we need great people. You need to be doing doing your job. If we all do our job, we'll, we'll succeed. Yeah. Um, and for some people, they absolutely flourish in that. And for some people, it's a hard thing not to have, you know, more guidance uh, along the way. But uh, um, at that moment, you know, being open and being uh, willing to to meet people where they are was certainly important. Yeah. So, okay, so that happens. You guys get through that. And then all of a sudden, 
if you want to say God, the universe, our little Fiona Fifi comes along. Wow. Can you right? imagine? Yeah, I mean. You couldn't have written a better story. You you couldn't have. And we needed it so much. Yeah, you needed you need, it. Everybody. Didn't I hear that like you had to shut down Twitter for a while after Harambe? Yeah. 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 Because yeah. it was dumb. so obnoxious. But And, and so, again, the, the difference being that got very obnoxious, but hardly any of it was from our community. The trust that you build and the the openness that you have with our community um, gave it a, a – most of that was from outside. Yeah. Not all, but most of sure, it. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so when we got to, you know, this incredible little Fiona, um, I can remember getting the call um, that night when, when she was born. I, I came in early that morning and went in and, and – you know, this is a very... Like, you got a phone call, she was born? Yeah. Wait, walk me through this. Yeah. Well, all right, let me... I have to back up two stories. Okay. So, because they, they're going to relate. So, okay. the the first time we, we actually really began to utilize social media around an animal birth was uh, a giraffe that was born at the zoo. And we, our marketing team, wanted to live tweet the birth. Yes. So, I'm at Starbucks and and the folks there are telling me they they say hey it's so great you have a baby giraffe and i looked at him like what oh yeah it's all over twitter and i hadn't heard a you thing didn't know. so we we set a new rule that i i needed a call i love that i love I, it. I may not i may not always you get might to not my be twitter, twitter feed um at at 6am yeah so yeah we we get the call that um fiona was born um which was a surprise to all of us because you know she was so uh premature we had been watching her that night because we knew something was happening, uh, but uh, you know it's certainly uh, a lot earlier than what we expected. Right. And I went down, and and at that point the team had already assembled, and they they do what they do. Uh, it is remarkable to watch, from the veterinary staff to the care staff to um, the the folks, the the in essence nursery staff that are there, ready. To, to jump in and take action, yeah. uh, keep that baby warm, begin to uh, get some milk from her mom, Bibi, and and begin okay, to try wait, and get on, some food on, in on. Oh, yeah. Let's do oh, a yeah. technical thing. Yeah. How do you get the milk from her from her boob? It's complicated, yeah. Wait. Same way, I mean, it... it, it, it uh, How, you have to say it. We've talked about some of these things before. It's nature, man. It is nature. It is nature. How do you yeah. do that? You, you have to milk her. You have to milk her. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't get a lot, but we got enough. So, but like when you milk her, does she need to smell the baby? No. How, she doesn't need to. No. Okay. Just no, milk you just her. have to keep the 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 head busy uh at the other end and kind of reach in there and oh get god. as much milk as you can. Oh my god, stop, stop. Okay. So, All right. Um but but you go in, the team had had snapped into action, you know, by the time I got there, um the, the she was wrapped up in blankets and but you know, this is a very premature baby uh, calf. So we were, you know, you're trying to manage expectations, but help support everybody with everything they need. Right. Um, and I can remember standing there and our uh, marketing director was with me and, and just the conversations we were having at that moment were like, this story has to be told this struggle for life that is happening right now has to be told. We have to share this. Going back to the transparency of Harambe, yeah. right? And and a lot of places wouldn't wouldn't even begin to think about that. But 
we had told everybody she's pregnant. We're right. going to tell the story at some point. So why not? Why not show confidence in our community and share that journey? Um, and we didn't know where it was going to end at that point, but we knew we were going to give everything we had to. Did you to think make it she was going to live that day? To be honest, no. You didn't. No. Um, she surprised me. She's <laughs> a hell of a fighter. Oh my gosh. Uh, she is. She. Um, that was a, she was a very premature hippo that, um, you know, we hadn't hand raised a hippo. In fact, I, I don't know the exact. Has anybody raised? There had not been, I, we found one example in Africa earlier in the century. So, <laughs> so oh, really? It was a long time so ago. So were you guys doing research prior to her being born or when she was born prematurely, then you started doing all this research? There was research. Um, they, they had done uh, ultrasounds. Uh, on Vivi while she was while she was pregnant, um, we did once uh, she was born some of the milk that we collected. We actually sent to the Smithsonian to no be analyzed. Way. Oh yeah, so that we have a record of that on Senate at different periods over a week or so, um, so that it could be analyzed and we we could all learn from that if anybody's in that situation again in the future. Um, but probably the the funniest moment for me. Yeah. Was after she was she you know she had rounded the bend the, the folks from Children's Hospital came over and helped us get an IV in her which you was couldn't just get one you absolutely get her amazing hydrated yeah or? yeah okay. they were like a SWAT team they came over and got a, a, a IV in a deep vein with an ultrasound unit it was they're crazy unbelievable cool. and so supportive to help um, literally saved her who life. thought by the way who thought to call them um you know a combination. That really depends on who you ask that story. But there were people um, at the zoo that had kids who had had that experience and said, hey, I know there are folks over at Children's. Why don't So why somebody don't we ask just them? picked up the phone and called and over to we've, we've worked with the folks over at Children's oh, okay. on, other, okay. uh, on other cases uh, before. I mean, that's another part of the community goodwill that we got. We've worked with doctors, not only at Children's, but... Uh, at UC Health and uh, Christ Hospital and others, um, we rely on a lot of support from the community because, I mean, you don't have all the answers. And, right. And you might as well get the, the world's experts to, to, help. to help. Wait, I interrupted. Yeah, keep telling the story because so, I interrupted. So the, the funny story for me was after she was she was thriving at this point and in and out of some pools, she'd grown out of her baby pool and we'd gotten her into the big pool in the <laughs> exhibit uh, in the holding area. But now was the day that we had to take her out into the exhibit for the first time and put her in the big pool. Yeah. And, you know, this is this, this is Fiona. I mean, we, right. Team Fiona had raised her. I mean, the, everybody was nervous. I, I went down and I was there taking pictures and I look out right before she walks out on the exhibit. There are four or five scuba divers in the pool. There are three or four keepers with snorkel gear on in the pool. Five or six folks up on the the land deck. I mean, we had we. It's like we were ready for anything. And and guess what happened? What? She is a hippo. She, she just knew went how right to. In. She knew how to swim. She just we, went right in. We looked down and and she you know she it hadn't been in that deep of water in a while, so it took her a little bit to figure out the how to get all the way up to the surface, but. They're usually born in the water. Hippos are made to be in the water. Right. So that that animal. I mean, we were nervous because we'd 
yeah. nursed her all this way. But and then she was fine. Hippos do what hippos do. Right. And it's she their was job. great. So that was that was one of the funnier moments for me when I think back at it. And I don't get me wrong, I was one of those people standing there really like nervous. Holding your breath. Yeah. Oh my but, gosh. Okay. Tell me so um Henry, what do you think happened with Henry? Yeah, it's Henry was a difficult situation. So, so. our listeners, so for our listeners that don't know Henry, yeah. Henry was um, Fiona's father. Yeah. Henry, and he developed, uh, you know, some some inflammation in the intestine, and it, it prevented him eventually from, uh, from feeding, from uh, eating. And he went through bouts. We treated him with... Everything we could think of uh, to manage that. And, and did he get along with Fiona? Like, tell us the the true Hollywood story on this. The one. true Hollywood story is he did. Yeah. Oh, darn again, it. a very nervous. I thought he didn't. I thought he very, was kind of like eh with he, her. Well, he wasn't. Yeah, I mean, Fiona, Fiona takes up a lot of airspace. Yeah. So you yeah. know, he he wasn't he wasn't as excited as some of Fiona's fans are. He, he wasn't as excited as, her. as but, his, as her mother, but Bibi. they did great. Another nervous moment too. You know, the first time you entered, you, you have to get the family group back together at some point. Right. So again, we, you know, you do the, what we call howdy introductions. You let them get close to each other on different sides of, uh, uh the stalls and, um, slowly introduce them. And then someday you have to Open the doors and, and just let them go and let them in and in, in a controlled way. But Does that ever happen with hippos that like a, fa- a father would kill the, the baby? Like, you know, with gerbils or something? I, I don't, I'm not an expert, I know, but I thought that sometimes like young could be eaten by a parent. Um, Did I make that up? Th- there can, there can be, I'm not familiar with them in human care with hippos, but they're, you know, hippos are, are big. Animals, dangerous animals. Yeah, um, and so and those those interactions you want to. It's it's again where the where the skill and observation of the care staff that literally take care of of those animals every day have to learn to read their behaviors and understand who they are. Okay, can um, we talk about unpredictable um, animals? Because you and I have talked about this before. Okay, what is the most unpredictable animal? Wow. I thought you would know this. You the told mo- me this last time. Uh-oh. See, this- You said it was a, a type of monkey. Remember? Because I told you I hate monkeys. <laughs> Remember? Oh, you- see, the, the, the bad part about this, Sarah, Did is I make talking this shit to, up? You're talking to a, a, a storyteller, so- Oh, my I gosh. I think I've rolled with the story. I feel but, like uh, I told you that I didn't like- I don't really enjoy primates that much. <laughs> I like apes. They're fine. I like apes. But like, you know, an orangutan- or something chimpanzee scare me yeah the um you know the primates at the zoo um as far as unpredictable go i you know the animals that we have in our care are the ones you know they're they're interacting as they would be in the wild so you you begin you begin to learn what they do in the wild and some of it may not be um i swear i'm not sure where (laughs) i swear to god you told me this you did Remember the chimpanzee? Because I told you how I was scared of him because that woman's face got ripped off by the chimpanzee. You're looking at me like, no. Okay, we're moving on. Sorry. Listeners, I swear. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to move on. Um, okay, can I do a laser round with you? We're not really at the end yet, but I have some really cool like questions sure. to ask you. Favorite animal? Giraffe. 
Least favorite animal. You have to pick one. You have to. Oh. Not I have you. a very I have a role at the zoo. How can I how can Come I label on, man. Come on. Least favorite. Come on. Uh, least favorite animal. I, I I can't really think of any. They're all interesting to me. You're being too PC. You're I am being too PC. a middle child. Come on, you have to give one. Least Just favorite. One. Do you want to give two least favorites? Would that help? Or three? All right. Okay. Least favorite. Good job. Here we go. Yes. Here we go. I'm ready. It's a little beetle. That That's lives, so lame. That lives in Africa, and it's known as Nairobii. Why do you not? Why is it your least favorite? Because it crawls on you at night, and then you smack it. And when you do that, it bites you. Oh no! It releases a little packet of a little acid that burns your skin and creates a little bullseye, like a where it gets its name, Nairobi eye. Okay. Mosquitoes wouldn't be my favorite either. No, I they wanna... they love me. Do mosquitoes love you? No, they don't. It's probably because your scent is oh, different. I don't get. They it. love me. No. So yeah, I'm not a big fan of mosquitoes either. These are not good. Can I... you please give a better one? Like. Is, all right, fine. I'm going to move to my next one. Animal you're most scared of? Polar bear. And you guys had a polar bear issue. There polar bears. Time. Yeah, polar bear. Bears in general. I shouldn't just say polar bears. Bears in general. Like I, I go, I teach a class every year in Africa, and, and I sleep in a tent on the ground with lions roaring 50 feet away. Doesn't bother me at all. You go camping in a national park, and bears are curious. So they, you know, you have to stash your food in the tree. You have to, they're, yeah. they're, they, they'll like come up to your tent and smell what you ate three weeks ago in the tent and come in. So camping around bears makes me they're nervous. they're curious. I like that. So. Okay. When you die and hopefully go to heaven, what one animal do you want to see when you get there? You can't use giraffe. You already used that for one answer. What one animal do I? I thought you were going to tell me what. What do I want to come back as? Oh, that's dude. That's an even better question. So I, I, okay. I'd probably come back as a bird. Now it would have to be a, a really great bird, like a peregrine falcon or something. That a that, what falcon? A peregrine falcon. Peregrine. Yeah, the traveler. So they live all over the globe and they travel, they travel great distances. They're amazing fly, fastest bird in the world. But I would want to. I would want to see that perspective from the air and I'd want to travel. I'd want to travel all over the place. That was a really good answer. Um, Do we have a peregrine falcon at the zoo? We don't. We don't. We have some Mm. pygmy falcons, which are little guys from from Africa, but we don't have a peregrine falcon. Okay. But you can see them. Where? You go out birding. Sometimes they nest here in downtown Cincinnati. Are you serious? We have them? Yeah, sometimes. They, They live in this area. They'll migrate through. You can see them. You'd be very proud of me. Last weekend, I went and bought a bird thing. You feeder? Know what I mean? Feeder, um, um, yeah. Um, Good, yep. Put the pole, and then I put the feeders on the side. Yeah. And I bought a bird book. There you go. Yep. That's I'm where start it all birding. starts. That's where it all starts. Yeah. You have any favorite apps around that for birds? I do. I do. I use uh, Sibley's Bird Guide. S- spell that. S-I-B-L-E-Y. Okay. Um, it's a great app. Um, has all the birds. Sa- it, it's off. Awesome. Okay. David Sibley uh, actually came to the zoo. Um, he's the artist and and author of that of that guide. Actually, so did Roger Tory Peterson. Who's so that? I've gotten the chance to meet some of the the most incredible naturalists that have 
been in, worked in the in the last half century. Um, Roger Tory Peterson is the guy who wrote the first bird guide. Um, drew the drew the pictures, you know, famed, um, celebrated uh, individually. Came to the zoo. I got to tour him around the zoo, and uh, you know, he he just tells the best stories. Well, we were sitting in Gorilla World, and he looked over and and looked at some kids, eight, ten years old. He said, you know, that's when that's when kids should get involved in birding. You know, that's when they're curious and they begin to look at at things critically and can identify the different colors and shapes and the fact that birds are very seasonal and migrate in and out of the area as the seasons change. Um, and that's, that's really when people should get involved in birding. And then he, then he paused and he said, except for women, <laughs> they should get involved two years after they get married when they get really bored. Oh my God. And, and I was so starstruck with him. I didn't laugh. <laughs> For like ten seconds, I'm like, "Oh my God, that was a joke." No, oh, no, I, I feel laugh. so bad. But now it's too late. We um, you tell the story about um, that monkey that was in that bar. Yeah, that you, you took. Um, so, uh, so yeah, the the smoking monkey bar, I think it was called. Yeah, you took um, Jane Goodall there. Yeah, Thane Thane took her out Thane. there. Um, she was here doing one of our Barrows lecture series, and he took her out to. To visit this chimpanzee who had had this life um, out in this in this bar, in the hopes that you know maybe we could do something and try and improve uh, his situation. Um, and one of the things that, that came out of it, in the perspective, you know that that Jane had was that's you know that's the world that that individual animal has known. And you know while it's not what we want that's who he is at that point and uh and didn't she speak monkey talk to him or something yeah yeah she did she's she could it is funny to listen to people who work around animals and can imitate them and i can't but animal sounds yeah yeah they can uh they can make all kinds of she's she's phenomenal at greeting calls and alarm calls everything else so is she still living she is. Does she come? Where? What is her work now? Her work today is a ambassador for peace across the world, um, and still, still is one of the most hopeful people you will find on the planet. I love that. Um, she, uh, you know, she is inspiring. Um, she still stays certainly engaged with issues with with great apes, with chimpanzees, uh, with wildlife, but. Um, has really arisen to a to a level of of uh, work that is trying to impact change across the whole world. And why did she come to Cincinnati that time? So she has been here a couple of times to uh, to be a part of our Barrows lecture series. We, you know, part of our um, educational effort is to to bring those people that are the adventurers, that are the wildlife biologists, that are the field conservationists that are dedicating, you know, every bit of their their life and energy to working in areas uh, and learning about wildlife uh, in places that that people didn't tread. Um, and we bring them to Cincinnati and let them tell their story and help people connect to those uh, wildlife and conservation issues. Are there any upcoming speakers that maybe you want to share that are exciting? Yeah, one of, one of them is... Truly, one of the world's great 
conservationists and adventurers, uh, Michael Fay. Michael uh, Fay, okay. Famed for the mega transect. He is the guy that walked, walked across Africa, across the central forest, rainforest what? of Africa, from Congo all the way, Democratic Republic of Congo, all the way over to Gabon on the coast, um, literally going places where, where no person had, had walked before. Absolutely amazing. Um, and he will come, and his work, that work inspired him and inspired others to create natural areas, uh, particularly in Gabon, that uh, are, are going to be a home for wildlife for generations to come. Is he a photographer? Like, did he take pictures along the way? He took a photographer with him. In fact, one of the you know, National Geographic's, uh, my, um, Nick Nichols, uh, the you know premier wildlife photographer uh, yes. alive today. So I he, think I follow him actually on Instagram. He's phenomenal. Yeah. He, he, you know, it takes a special dedication to be a field, uh, whether photographer or biologist. Um, you are you are giving of yourself in ways that um, a lot of people don't have the the temperament to do. Yeah. Um, to be out there learning and uh, and often on the front lines of conservation of human wildlife conflict of right. poaching of issues that we need those individuals on our planet that are doing. Yeah, uh, that we need work. their voices. And we need to celebrate them. Um, okay, so you can look up on the zoo website as to when when Michael. Faye yeah, Mike Faye. Will be coming. Yeah. Mike Faye will be coming. That's very cool. We talked about Fiona. We talked about Harambe. Any other really cool um, failure stories that you think would be important for our listeners to hear about, whether you personally or from the zoo? You know, I, I, I'll go back to the, the one I, I started with a little bit of the time period where the zoo um, really needed a, a change in focus. And you know, the thing that really struck me at that time, and I, I think probably the biggest change for me in my career, is to think about, you know, I got involved in the zoo and in zoo education because I love wildlife. Um, today, understanding the role that, that people play, um, both inside our organization and the community that supports us, you know, if you think about it, zoos are 100% either directly or indirectly funded by their communities. Mm -hmm. um, and that means we have a responsibility um, that we have as a nonprofit in this community, not only to celebrate wildlife, but to have a positive impact on the community as a whole. Um, yeah. we, we run a program, uh, a friend of ours uh, runs, called the Access for All program. And that in that program, we are reaching out and looking to the zoo of the future to say, how can we make sure that this experience, experiencing nature and getting excited and inspired by wildlife is available to everyone in our community? Um, so how do we do that? Well, first jump to thinking about economics. Well, that's the easy one. So we can figure out how to uh, still run a a profitable uh, nonprofit in town, um, but still run a profitable business and um, provide people who economically couldn't afford the experience that opportunity. Discounted tickets yeah. or something, so memberships we, and stuff. Yeah, we, we're, I think, the only zoo still today to do a access program for uh, admission tickets and memberships. So uh, we use the federal SNAP program as our 
measuring stick. That was going to be so, my next question. Um, and and with that, then provide a, a special rate for folks to to be a part of the community because that's what it's about. It's about being. So a what part made of the you? Community. What made that shift? Because there had to have been an impetus where you said, you know what, we need to start. It started, providing access. It started in our education department uh, with schools. It started with recognizing that we were not getting the all the schools um, visiting, that you know, there were many schools that, that were facing economic barriers. So we, we, again, reached out to our community and got corporate support, hmm. um, got support from foundations to help help us make a zoo visit for a, a whether it's an inner city school or a rural school that couldn't afford it to come to the zoo and have that experience. And then a light bulb went off. How can we do this? Uh, in fact, I, I think it was the director of education at that point who said, everyone in our community should have this experience. Why don't we do this with, with tickets and with memberships? Um, and how do we do that? Is anybody doing that? Um, and, and we put the program together that now is, you know, a tremendous success and looked to by other museums and zoos across the nation. Yeah, and you as guys a, have gotten some awards around that, too. As a model of success. I feel like the zoo has had to change. So what zoos were 20 years ago, they're not that way anymore. Um, whether it's animal welfare, whether it's conservation, whether it's access. Yeah. The zoos had to really change. Yeah, if you if you're not changing, you're and standing still, you're you're going to be quickly in that place where you're where you're failing. And mm-hmm. we have had to change. Um, we've had to understand our role as ambassadors for conservation um, across the across the globe, but also in our communities. Um, we've had to understand, particularly when it comes to animal excellence. Um, we have learned so much about the animals in our care, and we continue to get better and better and better uh, at understanding those animals and being able to provide them with the, the best care possible. Sometimes that means designing exhibits differently. Sometimes that means uh, providing, you know, activities. Activity. We call it enrichment. Yeah. Uh, into their into their daily lives. Um, nutritionists. I mean, I don't have a nutritionist, but the zoo does. The animals <laughs> right. at the zoo have a nutritionist that that allows us to provide the best uh, diets and food available, veterinary care. Every, you know, across the board, the, the care team at the zoo um, does a phenomenal job and continues to grow um, and um, learn more and apply that learning year after year. In fact, we have a, uh, a now a position at the zoo that is our animal excellence coordinator, uh, who is a phenomenal young man who is helping us use science to better understand um, the, the care that we're providing to our collection. You know, there's there's a balance between the the art of of animal husbandry, if you will, yes, uh, and the science of of animal excellence and trying to trying to pull those two together in a way that that creates better better welfare for the animals in our care. I love that. Well, this has been an amazing interview. I knew it would be. I want to leave you with this. The a department at work for my birthday photoshopped Fiona in a podcast chair. Like we're sitting right here. Uh-huh. I'll post it for everybody to see. Um, so although I didn't get Fiona, I think I got pretty close. Thank you. This That's a compliment. Been, I know she's a hippo, been, uh, but you are pretty awesome. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. So thanks, Dave.
I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, Anna Bolke, our producer, and the incredible team at Gwyn Sound. If you liked this episode, please, please go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and write a review. Hi, fans. In the next few weeks, we are going to be launching a Patreon page on our website, failforwardpod.com. Patreon, you're probably wondering what that is, but it's a membership platform that allows you to donate and support all the shows that you love. You probably don't know this, but all of our costs have been out of pocket and from people donating their time. So now that we've proven interest in the show, we want to pay those awesome people back for all of their hard work. So be on the lookout for more information on how your patronage of $5 or more a month can help us continue to spread the word of Failing Forward.